listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. You probably don't believe everything you hear. After all, that would be reckless. Believing something without actually knowing if what you believe is true is, by its nature, inherently dangerous. It can lead to false assumptions, physical harm, and the spreading of misinformation to the population at large, starting, of course, with your close friends and family. Belief is a powerful act, and it's wise to be careful what you choose to believe in. But what if you find something to believe in? and you really believe it's truth, and you spend all your time thinking about it. And so eventually you tell other people about it. And what if they believe it? What happens when many people spend their time and energy thinking about and believing in something in earnest? This is how religions and cults are started. How legends and wars begin. How the concept of Santa Claus, a Turkish saint turned Coca-Cola spokesperson, is still alive and well in 2017. The act of many people simultaneously concentrating their energy and thoughts is powerful. So, it should come as no surprise to listeners of this podcast that there are several types of monsters that directly owe their existences solely to collective and individual belief, including one species that's only been extant for eight years, but has become a force so powerful in our collective imaginations that this creature has been cited as the inspiration for real-world acts of violence. This week... Let me introduce you to some modern-day monsters descended from a creature called the Tulpa, as well as take a look at the power of the internet to connect our collective consciences, and, for better or worse, bring the things lurking there to life. First, let's start with the OG, a true neutral thought-born being called a Tulpa. Tulpa, translating to thought form, is a concept originating from both Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan Bon. The idea is that the Tulpa is a being or an object, that is actually manifested in the real world due to a person's faith and concentrated willpower. Normally, the power of a tulpa depends on the power of its creator. For example, the 14th Dalai Lama is said to partially be a tulpa of Chenrezig, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Now obviously, the 14th Dalai Lama is a real person who does real things in the real world. But, creating a person is a thing that most deities can do blindfolded. So it's not a stretch that a real person could partially be the tulpa of a deity. For the everyday student of Tibetan Buddhism, though, the tulpa is ultimately a non-real being created as an exercise of faith, and dismissed once the student reaches higher knowledge. The use of a tulpa is described in the Book of Magical Use of Thought Forms, in that the student was eventually expected to come to the understanding that the tulpa was just a hallucination. Yes, they created this seemingly now real being, but the idea is that ultimately nothing in this material plane is truly real compared to the other planes, and so the tulpa, like other material things, can be dismissed with enough willpower. Now here's where the concept of the tulpa begins to take on a less benign tone. In the magical use of thought forms, instructors were told to tell pupils who had managed to create tulpas that the tulpa was a genuine deity. However, and I quote, the pupil who accepted this was deemed a failure, and sent off to spend the rest of his life in an uncomfortable hallucination. 
meaning said pupil who truly believes the thing that they created is real because you told them it was is sent off with no way to dismiss their creation and a firm belief that their thought form is real and maybe just maybe the negative thoughts that come with being deemed a failure could possibly influence a being created from thoughts and then white people happened by which i mean belgian french explorer buddhist and spiritualist alexandra david neal decided she wanted in on the action and wrote about the practice as she had observed it in the 20th century she wrote topos are magic formations generated by a powerful concentration of thought an accomplished bodhisattva is capable of affecting 10 kinds of magic creations the power of producing magic formations tulkas or less lasting and materialized tulpas does not however belong exclusively to such mystic exalted beings any human divine or demoniac being may be possessed of it the only difference comes from the degree of power and this depends on the strength of concentration and the quality of the mind itself that's right this european explorer decided that tulpas are fair game for just anyone to make so long as they concentrated and had enough willpower. Now, this is a dangerous enough idea, but then she further elaborates, writing that tulpas can develop their own wills, and even providing a personal anecdote on tulpa creation. Alexandra writes, Once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. This, say Tibetan occultists, happens nearly mechanically, just as a child, when his body is complete and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. David Neal then writes further about her own tulpa, a being in the image of a jolly friar-tuck-like monk, which later developed a life of its own and had to be destroyed. Now, David Neal did raise the possibility that her experience was illusory, saying, I may have created my own hallucination, though she does go on to report that others could see the thought forms that had been created. So, up to interpretation. Now, Alexandra David Neal seems like a cool person. She was an explorer, a spiritualist, a Buddhist, and an anarchist, and I'll provide a link for those interested in reading further about her. But the things she wrote on tulpas turned the tulpa from a spiritual exercise to a being that not only can be created by anyone with enough willpower, but eventually gains conscience and is implied to become dangerous once it does. This is the concept that seems to have stuck concerning tulpas. And a being that can take any image will eventually turn on its creator and is divorced from traditional religious practices to dismiss it is what we're left with today. And, like all creatures, it appears that tulpas are evolving with the times. Let's have our own thought exercise. Say you've created a tulpa, and your belief is so powerful that it gains a will of its own and turns against you. And because you're not a practicing Tibetan Buddhist, you have no way to banish the tulpa. What happens next? Well, the power of a tulpa is thought to be linked to the belief of its creator. So, if I, hypothetically of course, were a tulpa, I wouldn't want to automatically ice my creator, because there goes all the belief, and theoretically maybe even me. 
No, what I were to do if I were theoretically a tulpa that had gained sentience is use my environment. I would seek out more belief, and adapt to outgrow the dependence on the belief of one person. Specifically, I would go to the internet, the world's one-stop shop for viral, crowdsourced belief. Now, that may sound silly, but before I get to the creature I'm obviously teasing, let me provide an example of a true internet tulpa, created by taking a simple childhood game from another culture and blowing it so out of proportion that it had real-life consequences. In 2008, the internet took notice of an old Spanish game called Juego de la Pecera, or Game of the Pencils. The original game, played by teenage girls in Spain, in schoolyards or at sleepovers, is kind of like a simple version of the paper fortune teller game. Players take four, or later two, pencils and balance them on each other on a piece of paper that has yes or no written in a grid. Players then ask yes or no questions, and minor air movement or unconscious player movement causes the balanced pencil to move in one direction or the other, producing yes or no answers. In the original game, there's no entity moving the pencils. The pencils just move and an answer is provided, much like a magic 8-ball. Nothing sinister, just a fun game to play when you're a teenager, and your future still has so many questions with uncertain answers. The trouble started when YouTubers and Viners and other video creators started playing the two-pencil version of the game alone, or with friends, and posting the outcome online. English players started to begin playing the game by asking, can we play, or are you here? and attributing the answers they received to their questions to a supernatural entity named Charlie. Originally, Charlie was said to be a Mexican ghost. Which, why a Mexican ghost is named Charlie is anyone's guess. But then later, thanks to Christian critics, Charlie became a Mexican demon. Despite, and perhaps because of the idea of being able to summon a demon with pencils, the game became wildly popular, with more and more people playing it and recounting their encounters with Charlie on the internet. The game was rechristened the Charlie Charlie Challenge, and it drew the attention of teenagers, exorcists, and concerned parents alike. And then in May 2015, The Racket Report, a known parody website, posted a hoax article claiming that 500 mysterious deaths had resulted from playing the Charlie Charlie Challenge. The problem was, in June 2015, the Fiji Sun, a real newspaper in Fiji, reported the Racket Report article as true news. The Fijian Ministry of Education immediately banned the game, and three Fijian teachers in Tavao were actually taken to a police station for questioning over allegations that they forced their students to play the game. Luckily, these teachers were cleared of all charges, but we are still seeing real-world consequences of this phenomena created by the internet. In April of this year, for example, the East Libyan government banned the game, blaming it for six suicides. This hysteria is all despite the fact that not only is the original game not from Mexico, but that the game never originally involved a supernatural entity at all. Charlie is, in a sense, a tulpa created by the collective fear of people playing a game they don't fully understand from a culture they don't belong to. At some point, the YouTubers and Viners playing the game decided that the yes or no answers must be coming from somewhere, 
and Charlie was created to fill this gap in knowledge. And really, to fill gaps is the job of any good monster. Gaps in understanding, gaps in light, gaps under the bed. That's where monsters live. So it was only a matter of time before a user saw a gap in the internet. Or, more specifically, a gap in an old picture on the internet, and created the perfect monster to fill it. And make no mistake, this creature, which people claim to have seen in real life and which has inspired real-world acts of violence, is 100% man-made. Regardless of the fear it inspires, and whether or not it now stalks the dark woods, we can trace the origins of this creature to a man, a website, and an actual date. Specifically, Eric Knudsen, Something Awful, and June 10th, 2009. The thread was originally posted as a Photoshop contest. Users were challenged to edit everyday photographs to appear paranormal, and then post them on the forum for other users to judge. Though previous entries had consisted solely of edited photos, Eric, posting as Victor Surge, added text to accompany his photos. The photos are of groups of children, and the edits are so elegantly done that the photos look genuine. Truly. In each photo, there is an unnaturally tall humanoid, with a pale, featureless face. The humanoid appears to be wearing a suit, and in the second photo, there is a suggestion of tentacles or tendrils protruding from the figure. The text reads as follows. The quote under the first photograph read, We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But it's persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. 1983. Photographer unknown. Presumed dead. The quote under the second photograph read, One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library plays. Notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished, and for what is referred to as, quote, the Slender Man. Deformities cited as film defects by officials. Fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13, 1986. These two captions were all it took with subsequent posters immediately latching onto the creature and expanding its lore, adding their own works of fiction and photo edits, and, in one particularly well-done case, a fake documentary called Marbled Hornets, in which the Slender Man stalks a filmmaker. The creature became a horror phenomena, and the only qualifications for popular works to expand Slender Man's lore were that the creature's motives, abilities, and methods of killing were left intentionally vague. The Slender Man lives in the woods or abandoned places. The Slender Man moves without moving, possibly via teleportation. The Slender Man chooses victims that look into it too closely, or seemingly at random. Victims may or may not experience symptoms such as nosebleeds, paranoia, or delusions. What drew people to the Slender Man was the intentional vagueness. A being that resembles a lot of other paranormal creatures and behavior, think fairies, shadow people, and suicide spirits, with almost no concrete information, on a platform in which information is always at the user's fingertips. 
The Slender Man is now part of countless works of literature, two video games, and three films, with another film recently announced in 2016 as being in the works. And, as I alluded to before, people have claimed to have actually seen the creature. Five months after Slender Man's creation, Coast to Coast AM, a radio call-in show devoted to the paranormal and conspiracy theories, began receiving callers actually asking about the Slender Man. Unfortunately, believing in something strongly can sometimes cause strong reactions. In Slender Man fiction, the Slender Man generally targets young adults and children, and both his method of hunting and motivations are left purposefully vague. Someone was bound to fill in the gaps. On May 31st, 2014, two 12-year-old girls in Wisconsin lured their classmate into the woods and attacked her, stabbing the child 19 times. When questioned later by authorities, the girls claimed that they wanted to commit a murder so they could become proxies for Slenderman, saying they had read about it online. They also stated that they were afraid that the Slenderman would kill their families if they didn't commit the murder. Luckily, their classmates survived, getting help from a passing cyclist after the attack, and both girls have been sentenced to 65 years in prison. Both the Slenderman and Charlie were created by the collective consciousness of people connected by the internet, creating creatures to fill gaps in storytelling. What if I told you, though, that recently, a creature has popped up on the internet that not only seems to be self-propagating, but also seems to be aware of the level of belief people have in it. That's right, I'm talking about the newest breed of tulpa, a sort of intrusive thought tulpa. None other than the Babadook. And here's your warning, I'm about to go into some major spoilers. The Babadook is the main antagonist in a 2014 Australian-Canadian psychological horror film. The film follows a widow still grieving the loss of her husband, and her son, whose birth indirectly resulted in his father's death. The main character's son begins exhibiting erratic behavior, such as building weapons to fight an imaginary, unspecified threat, when a pop-up book called Mr. Babadook appears in the character's home. The main character's son asks his mother to read the mysterious pop-up book to him, and the book describes a tall, bulky, pale-faced humanoid in a top hat with pointed fingers called the Babadook, whose only motive is to torment its victims after they become aware of its existence. After this initial reading, the main character's son becomes convinced that the monster is real, and as the main character staunchly denies the monster's existence, she begins to experience paranormal events, such as doors opening and closing, hallucinations, glass in her food, and increasing paranoia. The main character destroys the book which originally contained the Babadook, only to have it reappear reassembled on her doorstep. The paranormal occurrences escalate, and only when the main character finally acknowledges the Babadook's existence as a real being is she able to defeat it. Though not an original internet creation, internet users have already begun to spread the Babadook far and wide, creating memes, writing original fiction involving the Babadook, and even creating replicas of the pop-up book that the Babadook is thought to emanate from. And it's easy to see why belief in the creature is spreading. The idea of a creature that becomes aware of you as soon as you become aware of it is inherently scary, especially in a time period where there is so much free access to information 
that one can stumble across new ideas purely by accident. Like the Slenderman, the Babadook is a creature that subsists on belief. But unlike the Slenderman, the Babadook not only has a specific source of entry into its victim's life, but also a specific look, and specific motives, to get you to acknowledge it. It's a tulpa divorced from a creator, a self-aware belief that forces itself on people by actively punishing disbelief. There are no current real-world sightings of the Babadook, nor, luckily, any incidents of violence attributed to belief in the creature. But this new creature is out there now. It exists on the internet. And as the movie said, you can't get rid of the Babadook. That's it for Tulpas and their newest incarnation in the age of the internet. As always, if you want to learn more, I hope you'll check out the show notes. Musical score, as well as intro and outro music, are all done by the wonderfully talented Scott Ethington. If you like the music, you can find more of his work at Bazooka Raccoon on SoundCloud. Finally, if you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster. <laughs>